Welcome to the Maintenance Maniacs podcast, focused on all things related to equipment maintenance and building operations. Please respect all applicable legislation, company regulations, and most importantly, personal confidence level. Don't attempt something just because you heard it on a podcast. With that said, here are your hosts, Chris Wilcox and Victor Grant. A little bit of a bonus episode here. I don't want to copy the MTGA podcast or anything like that, but we do have another side series in the Maintenance Maniacs podcast. We're going to call this On Call with an Operator. And what that is, is every once in a while, we're going to interview somebody in the industry who's neither Chris Wilcox nor Victor Grant, because you guys are going to get bored of hearing us talk all the time. Isn't that right, Chris? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's right. So today we're... Uh, happy to be joined by andrew king he's down in texas you might know him as at some guy with tools on instagram and youtube Uh, so he's graciously uh joined us here for an interview today Uh, if you weren't aware andrew's actually a building engineer so he is in the industry Uh, most of his instagram content youtube content doesn't really revolve solely around building operations he's got kind of a side thing going on we're going to chat about that as well but we wanted to bring him on. Uh, he's got a little different perspective working in different types of buildings than ones that Chris and I work in. So that's what we wanted to do for the first on-call with an operator. So, uh, Andrew, you're on the line. We can hear you nice and clear. Hey, guys. Uh, how are you all doing tonight? I appreciate you having me on. There he is. There's Andrew. You bet. Thanks for uh, sharing your time with us here. So I guess we'll, we'll kick it off. Chris, uh, you got uh, the first question lined up there for Andrew? Sure. So, yeah, thanks for doing this, Andrew. Appreciate it very much. Just to kind of start it off, I was I was curious about maybe your education or training background um, as, you, as, you, as you have progressed through your career. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm actually still fairly, you know, relatively new in the grand scheme of things, especially compared to your tenure there, Chris, but... I've been a building engineer for a little over two years now, and I kind of fell into it out of dumb luck, honestly. Uh, I spent a little over a decade working offshore for a uh, core sampling company. If you remember back to y'all's very first episode, introducing it yourselves, and Victor was talking a lot about oil-related or oil and gas-related jobs and how those kind of loosely tied in gave you a feel for procedures and maintenance and everything with buildings it was a similar situation for me a friend of mine worked for the property management company and through them i had met the a few of the building engineers over time and some of the other office personnel they had always told me you know if you ever get tired of being gone being away from everything just let us know so one day i took that leap i finally got tired of being away from the family from the kids And uh, walked in and haven't looked back since. And it was actually, you know, again, like Victor said before, it loosely parallels building engineering. And so I spent a lot of time working on centrifugal pumps and reciprocating mud pumps, uh, running downhole tooling. And where I ended in that job field prior to coming to building engineering was operating downhole tools and subsea equipment. So it was a lot of electrical troubleshooting and systems, hydraulic systems as well, and 
reading line drawings and that was kind of what led me into reading blueprints and reading construction plans and things like that. And so while nothing directly tied, it very closely paralleled and was able to get me at least a good feel for what I was walking into. It's just kind of been off to the races ever since. Well, that's really cool. I like the, I like the tie-in that you both have, um, you know, similar experiences in your background, getting to getting you to where you are today. That's, that's pretty neat. Yeah. So Andrew, quick question on that then. Were you in oil and gas during the 2008 kind of recession or were, did you get into it after that? So, oh man, that's a lot of, that's a lot of years back to think. I know. I know. Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> no. So 2008, let's see. I was working for an electrician here in Houston. Okay. And then around 2010, I jumped into land rigs and worked as a floor hand for about a year, year and a half, and then made a switch over to offshore. And like I said, that wasn't production drilling. That was uh, core sampling and downhole uh, testing prior to the rigs going out for the production holes. So I'm, I avoided that 08 recession. And then the one that I was in the middle of, I think it was like 2015. 15, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. When everything plummeted out and land took a bigger hit during those years than offshore did. Luckily for me, at least because offshore budgets were set two, three years in advance. And so by the time that offshore budgets began to run out and those projects began to dry up, it had finally started to pick back up on land. And so everything kind of, we just skipped it with a little minor hookup. Yeah, that makes sense. You kind of transitioned around it. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, just I've, I've never uh, worked uh, offshore and, and I, you know, you and I have chatted about oil field and stuff in the past, but it's, it's always an interesting question, I, I think, like, regarding the climate of the economy and when people were in oil and gas and and where their sort of transitional periods are uh, because you're either in it and or you're not now and if you were in it then there was a good chance that you had some hiccups while being in it so i just i just think that's interesting on a personal note yeah no absolutely and um i had several friends who at the time were still working on production rigs on land and they ran into much tougher times than we did again fortunately for me we were the majority of the work that we did was off of the african coast and over in europe and everything like that and so we somehow lucked into avoiding the majority of the slowdown Mm -hmm. cool so after you were let's call it exiled is that a good word (laughs) (laughs) after you were exiled um did you take or have you been taking any formal training or education courses, whatever you want to call it, specifically relating to building operations? So I'm in this weird kind of gray area in between. I have applied for and hold my apprentice electrician's license um, coming up on needing to do my continuing education and renewing that for a year. And uh, the other main one for us in the area down in Houston is, or the next stepping stone for me, I guess, would be a third grade stationary engineer's license. And for that, though, one of the requirements is to be operating in a building with a boiler for a minimum of two years. 
And so my initial six or eight months with the company were not in a building that had a boiler. So I'm coming up on two years, but I'm just kind of hanging out, waiting on that period to roll over so then I can apply for and test for that engineering license. Right. So that's similar to like power engineering that we have up here in Canada. Right now I'm just, uh, I'm operating under, so on my team that I'm on, I have a chief engineer and I have a first grade stationary engineer who is my lead engineer and I'm operating underneath their licenses, you know, under their supervision right now. So I guess moving from that question about education and training and background, do you have any thoughts on the younger generation? I guess, and I include you and I in that, uh, you know, the, the younger generation coming into uh, building operations. Are we leaving Chris out? We're yeah, leaving I'm, Chris out of the younger generation. I'm old. I'll go ahead and say it. I'm old. <laughs> yeah. Think- do, you, do you work with? Some younger guys or some more experienced guys? What's the demographic like down there? No. So the company that I work for is a is a pretty large outfit down here in the Houston area. And we have, I'd say, upwards of 70 or 80 properties around the greater Houston area that we maintain. But I think I'm one of less than a handful of guys who are in their 30s. And then there's about a 10-year gap. And so everybody else on my team is 55 plus and have, you know, are 20 years, 25 years into doing this. And there's just a, especially down here amongst my company, there's a huge gap between mine and your generation, Victor, and the Chris's of the field. And it seems like they just, I'm not sure where the disconnect was. Um, I know that, at least in my mind, as you and I, Victor, were going through school, I feel like all the parents were really pushing, go to college, get a job, get you know, you need to be in an office, and that's the best thing for you. And there was such a heavy push for it that trades in general took a hit amongst people that are our age. But then more so than that, being that we're not one specific trade – the maintenance engineering, I think, took an even bigger hit because people were overlooking that. And so you already had parents and a whole generation steering away from the blue-collar jobs, and then you had to filter through the spe- the specified trades, the electricians, the plumbers, and these HVAC guys before you would even were even made aware of maintenance engineering. Yeah, I don't know about you, Victor, but I get <clears throat> I get a lot of statements wrapped around this subject. Um, seems like I've had quite a few younger folks recently uh, kind of admit to me that they didn't even know this was a possibility, and, and that's it's kind of a, it's kind of a big sticking point with me because w- what concerns me the most in this conversation is that you know most likely there's there's a child sitting in a classroom somewhere uh, knowing that traditional education isn't for them, but not realizing that they have a way that they can succeed elsewhere. And it's probably something they're into, into doing already anyway, you know, and they, they, they're just sitting there, you know, how am I going to make it? And they, they're not realizing that there's definitely another route you can take. That was me to a T Chris. I was sitting all through high school. I went to a year worth of college and just like, man, I cannot 
this is not for me. This is not how I can learn. I can sit here and stare at this textbook for days on end and not retain a single bit of information. But you put me outside and give me something to work on. Tell me once how to do it and I've got it. And you're not going to have to tell me again. To your point, I think that there's a vast amount of potential workforce there. Just like you or I who are sitting there saying, man, this is this is absolutely miserable. This is killing me to sit in this class without even realizing. I mean, I didn't realize this was a thing until I happened to meet some of the guys who work for the company that I now work for. You know, you don't, it's often overlooked what it takes to keep bi every building that's there operating. Well, I, I know that you're definitely not alone where there's, there's, there's both ends of it. There's people who, uh, don't learn well in those environments specifically. And then there's people who are on the other side of it who don't learn well in those environments because it doesn't provide any stimulation and they're way ahead of that level of education. Like they might be learning on their own at home or reading books and, you know, reading encyclopedias when they're kids, like things like that, where, they're sitting in a high school classroom where it's the generalized education level and they're just bored out of their mind because they're so far ahead of it as well. And I've encountered both types of people where you get them into a certain hands-on trade and they're excelling like immediately because it's limitless, right? Like, like if you start out, uh, in, in a plumbing apprenticeship or something and then you get into gas fitting and then you get your master's and all that electrical you know you could get all the way up to a master's in elect electrical right like it's very possible that people can do that leading into building operations and building engineering as well so so i often talk about traits the type of people that excel in the jobs that we do and i was curious uh what do you think three traits are, Andrew, that building operators uh, should have? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think it kind of goes without saying that a general mechanical mindset, you know, um, I don't know about you guys, but like growing up, I loved tearing things apart and tinkering and putting them back together, seeing how something worked. And I mean, I think that started way back with Legos and what are the uh, Lincoln logs and things like that? Just liking to see how things could go together and come back apart. But aside from that general mechanical mindset, I think that adaptability is a big one. Um, the ability. So with that, I mean, not to allow yourself to be too hung up on kind of falling into like a robotic sense of mindset where I know I need to do A, then B, then C, then D, and being able to adapt to a fluid situation because you're not only looking at one piece of equipment or one system in a building. You're looking at how that relates to another one, to another one, how that's going to affect the end user or the tenant or the, you know, the contractor who's coming in behind you. So I think adaptability is really important and being able to adjust on the fly to what's happening. I think critical thinking and problem solving skills are also a big one, which ties back into that general mechanical mindset where if you walk into 
I think I've heard y'all say it before on previous episodes. You know, you walk into a mechanical room and you hear a bearing squeaking or a belt is loose and it's squeaking. You need to be able to think to yourself, well, what's causing that bearing to squeak? What, where can I start troubleshooting this and diagnosing and being able to take that one and work backwards to find the root cause of it instead of, you know, kind of scratching your head and saying, well, okay, the bearing's squeaking, but now, now where do, who do I call for this? Or I'm not sure what to do. So I think that's another important one. And I also find that being a self-starter or self-motivated kind of individual is very important. There's the majority of my days at my buildings, I'm working alone. Occasionally, other people on my team will pop in or pop out. But the majority of the time, I'm working alone. And I find that if you're not able to motivate yourself to keep going, and you're the type of person who needs to be, I hate to use the word babysat, but babysat and and hovered over, then that's not exactly the best uh, trait. And I think that being that self-motivated type of personality and being able to be counted on for being proactive when something is happening and that work order comes in or that PM pops up for the month or for the week and just being able to be counted on to, okay, I saw it. It's time to go take care of it. No whining or fussing or moaning and groaning about it. You just, you take care of the job. And I think that that one pays dividends in its own by freeing up, in my case, my lead engineer, and then above him, the chief, to go and take care of their own tasks and not have to worry about making sure that I'm staying motivated, I'm staying on task. So I think those three are probably, to me, the the most important traits. Very, very well said. Uh, a lot of those things you just brought up are actually uh... – things I discuss with potential uh, applicants. And I say potential applicants because I like to have conversations like that before we even get into what your background is or you know, if I'm even going to consider hiring you because I always want to lay that stuff out in front of somebody uh, because everything you just said is super important to what we do. I need you to come do some interviews for me, Andrew. That was awesome. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more likely I'm more likely to apply with you than to interview for for you. I I want to get up there and see some of that scenic Canada, man. Yeah, I I I agree. We need to we need to have an operations party up here. (laughs) That's cool. I I really like that. We're okay. So we 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 did like a complex question there. Chris, he's hitting you with the hard ones here. I'm gonna give you a couple easy ones. Okay. Okay. So. Just like quick response, the first thing that comes into your mind. What's the most favorite part of your job? That every day is different. I love it. And what's the least favorite part of your job? Oh, that's easy. Stopped up toilets. (laughs) (laughs) No hesitation on that, man. (laughs) That was not the answer I thought you were going to give. That's amazing. I like that. (laughs) Who who likes that part? <laughs> oh, well, plumbers, I guess, because it pays their bills, right? It doesn't smell like money to me, buddy. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. Cool. So I'm going to let Chris ask the next one, but I'm going to premise it by saying this. Your your IG and YouTube handles is at some guy with tools, right? Yeah. So we cannot do this interview without asking you about tools. <laughs> so Chris, go ahead. the million dollar question, favorite tool if you had to choose one and why? So I, I got to give you a couple of different answers. So maybe not my favorite, but I got to preface by saying the most used tools because I sat there and listened through y'all's entire episode about y'all's EDC and your, your everyday carry tools that stay in your pocket. And so I just had to chime in and say that I hundred, I 100% agree with everything that y'all listed off between the flashlight, my little tick stick. I have since I told Victor this already, I have since replaced my crescent wrench with a pair of pliers wrenches and a good voltmeter. And those things with those four and a 11 and one screwdriver, I feel like I can take care of probably 80% of my issues with just those handful of things. To answer your question, an actual answer, the favorite, my favorite tool that I've got that I can use on the job in any kind of regular basis has to be the hydraulic pipe press because that has cut down astronomically on my plumbing calls to my contractors. Uh, the ability to not need to worry about hot work and soldering together new lines and doing all of that and shutting things down for an hour or two or having to come back after hours to solder it so that no one's worried about the heat and everything um, and be able to just quickly and efficiently check that off of my list anytime a leak pops up. A cordless hydraulic pipe press is the number one thing that I'm that I love to use and it's just I mean it's cool I was just gonna say it's just plain cool <laughs> <laughs> it's just cool to use man <laughs> you know it's funny you mentioned that Andrew too so I'm on I'm in the uh, process of doing a controls upgrade at an office building okay so we're removing all the pneumatic zone valves and installing DDC and I have to take multiple fire panels offline anytime the plumbers are in the building doing that work because it's all soldering. So we're not only doing that consideration for the fire panel and the smoke detectors and all that, we're also scheduling around when people are going to be in certain offices so that that smell doesn't you know, bother them while they're working or anything. Exactly. So if we had that press option with that specific contractor that would save it would save so much right so much time and and scheduling and just hiccups and things that are in the way right it eliminates those i know chris you like that tool too right oh buddy do i so andrew have you had to do uh do any uh live valve replacements yet no fortunately i have not and the one time that it came up at it's not a staffed building. It's a building we maintain. We don't regularly stay there. The one time it came up over there, we were too busy with some other stuff. And so we let the plumber take care of that. And I wasn't mad about that one either. <laughs> so I've done it twice now, had no other choice. And it went off without a hitch. And we both know that I would have got nowhere threading that. Well, maybe threading it. But the thing is, is that 
uh, I wouldn't have been able to necessarily put my pipe threader on it, but uh, I definitely wouldn't have sweated it. So, you know, having that press tool was kind of the saving grace. Oh, absolutely. I've seen dozens of videos online, especially on Instagram. These guys, you get the helper out there with the little, um, that Milwaukee handheld pipe cutter. Yep. He, cu- he cuts it off and the plumber's standing there ready with the press-on valve already sitting in the tool, slam it on, press it, and yeah, he's wet, but 30 seconds later, he's shutting off the valve and the line is safe. And it's it's incredible, man. It's just – I can't tell you how big of a fight, though, it was for me to convince my building's owners to let me buy a press. They said, we can't we're – not, we're not stomaching that $1,800 or $1,900 for the kit. I said, but look, you know – Three plumbing calls, four plumbing calls over a leak, not to mention the additional time that it's leaking water and the additional remediation we got to do. It's paid for itself because I can take care of it here in-house without having to call the plumbers at $500, $600 a pop. And it was that was such a hassle to get them on my on the same page as me. And then once I did, within... I think four months it had already paid for itself. And I was able to turn around and say, look, we're, we're in the green on this already. So what kind of applications do you use it in? The majority of the time for me, it is uh, domestic cold water lines. The building that I spend the majority of my time in has lovely old copper lines that are slowly starting to deteriorate and they like leaking right at the soldered joints. And so the majority of time, it'll be someone used a sink and shut it off a little bit too quick. And that shock went back and it was just the right time for the solder to give. And it starts leaking at a T or leaking at a 90. And luckily, we have enough isolation valves that I can shut off that corner of the floor in order to press it without it being live. But that 90% of them is stuff like that little half inch or three quarter inch copper. Carried on. Okay. Well, this was something that I wanted to ask and you and I sort of spoke about it while it was occurring, but not everyone that's listening to this lives in Texas. So last winter, Texas had that incredible cold snap that, you know just doesn't happen down there that felt like a normal tuesday for you that felt like (laughs) exactly that felt like when i woke up and left the house today you you got it so i was wondering can you share some of your experiences working through that cold snap and any mechanical issues you encountered or what you did to prevent issues from encountering that you knew was going to be an issue with the the forecasted temperatures yeah, so how, how familiar are you with like the problem that came about or why it became such a big problem for us? I, I can give you kind of the Cliff Notes version of why that messed up Texas as bad as it did. Okay, so personally what I understand, and maybe Chris, you can chime in here too if, if this is what your understanding is. I was under the impression that there's a federal mandate in the U.S. to build um, structures or design equipment with a 
winter consideration in the design and Texas does not adhere to that. They're exempt or something. That's the way I understood it. Does that kind of ballpark right? Yeah. Okay, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's ballpark right as to how buildings and homes and everything came to be susceptible to the issue. But even beyond that, the problem gets a little bit bigger because Texas, you know, the, the U S has a national power grid, but Texas exempted themselves from it. And so we have an independent power grid. We're not tied to any other States. So when our grid in Texas gets overloaded, we can't pull in power from other States power plants. So what happened for that cold front that came through is that the Texas board had several substations and emergency, you know, generator systems that were either not winterized properly or were taken offline for maintenance, uh, thinking that we were out of the winter already. So when the excess load came about while people were home, homes were cold, they were trying to heat up, the grid couldn't handle it. And a lot of substations started falling offline. And then the ice in the roads prevented the workers from getting to the main stations to bring systems that had fallen off back online. Then you couple that with trees who couldn't handle the ice and falling on lines and everything. It was a nightmare. But as for our buildings, I was fortunate because my chief was, he wanted to be overprepared. So prior to it coming in, what we wound up doing is shutting down the, well, we didn't need the chillers. So we shut down the whole cooling system. I drained all the water out of my coolant tower and my condenser lines going out to it because my coolant tower is 250 feet away from the building with uninsulated lines above the ground <laughs> over in its yard. Not wow. to mention the basin that's just open to the elements out there. So we drained both cells of my tower, the entire 250 times two worth of lines and then cranked up the boilers to run 24 seven for the week that it was supposed to be cold. So at, at my main building that I spend the majority of my time at, we were very fortunate that the only thing that went wrong for us was I had one sprinkler head near some exhaust vent louvers in my plant cracked in half. And so when I finally made it to the building, that one, luckily it was only cracked and it didn't burst. So it was just misting out and I had a nice icicle formed, but nothing terrible, you know, leaking onto concrete floor. And our other building is, I call it a building. It's really three buildings combined into one, uh, one kind of campus. They had done a similar thing and drained all of their, chillers who are which are on top of the parking garage and so we avoided the majority of issue uh but a lot of other a lot of homes and a lot of other commercial buildings were not so fortunate we had another one which our company maintains 
they did not drain their condenser lines and both supply and return 10 inch condenser lines ruptured uh over top of a breezeway that led to the parking garage oh, no. and wrecked the breezeway all of it went down onto that's the main entranceway of the building iced over up there that was a good one we had another building where the fire loop run uh, the riser runs up through an eight-story parking garage and it bust on the first floor and drained that whole loop out and the pump kicked on and no one could get to the building to shut off the pump so that one was good and then we had another building with a it has two stories of a parking garage below grade and has a sump pump down in the bottom of it and the sump pump housing cracked which didn't cause an issue but just needed the pump replaced so I was very fortunate that my fix was one sprinkler head that I had on hand compared to other buildings. But a lot of, I think more problems arose for households than it did for buildings because at least down here, I'm not sure about up in your area, but down here, they don't insulate attics to the exterior. They insulate between the attic and the home or the occupied space, but not against the roofing material. And so all of your plumbing that is running through the attics, a lot of homes that lost power, all of their plumbing in the attics busted. And so that's where a lot of houses had issues. You know, the main line comes in, runs up to the attic and starts branching off. Well, that main line is what busted old galvanized pipes and just wrecked homes. So, so up here, and I don't know if they do this where you live, Chris, the only thing that goes through an attic in a residential setting is a vent. Yeah, it's the so, same way. Yeah, same so way like here. exhaust from a bathroom or, you know, like even furnace vents, like they go out the side of the house because your furnace is in your basement. Yeah, so, ours ours goes goes through the roof, the, you know, the vent for the furnace still, but yeah. in, some, in some cases, like my particular home, uh, my furnace is in the crawl space, and that's a that's in like an attic crawl space. No, uh, no. basement crawl space. Basement yeah. crawl space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So yeah, I guess th- this. I'm just blown away by everything you said here. So I got like four questions I got to ask you, so yeah, I don't forget them. So my my first question is 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 your chief engineer when he said to you, uh, "We want to run the boilers at max capacity for an extended period of time." How, how what was your level of confidence that those boilers were even sized appropriately for those exterior temperatures? <laughs> uh, my level of confidence was run them till they can't, man. I, <laughs> <laughs> the, I appreciate the honesty. <laughs> I I hearkened back to my oil field days and just let it run, man. Um, yeah. Luckily. It was less than a month before we, no, I guess it was a couple of months before we had just finished up the annuals on them and everything was nice and buttoned up and running smoothly for daytime operations. So I had, I had a fairly high level of confidence in it and I was also able to remote in and monitor them from my home. 
you know, on the front end, on, on the, the auto system. Yeah. yeah on yeah. the automation. So I was able to keep an eye on them and see that they were still going. And I was also able to make sure that the building hadn't lost power. And so those, I felt more confident about those boilers running than I did the heater in my house. Right. <laughs> so, and, and okay. So the other question that popped in my head, when you mentioned about the electrical grid of Texas being disconnected from the rest of the country. Yep. So, so that's like physically, like there is no connection. If there is, I don't know of it. Okay. Um, as far as I'm aware, and maybe someone can respond who knows better, but as far as I'm aware, it's physically disconnected so that Texas is on its own grid. Okay. That's something I wasn't aware of. Were you aware of that, Chris? So I've heard a couple different things. That was uh, uh, that was one thing I'd heard, and then it was in general – uh, there was something else somebody said, and I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out what the heck that was, and I can't remember. But uh, in some way, shape, or form, yes, that's how I thought I heard it. Okay, okay, so that clears up those two questions. And then when you had mentioned that you were draining your chillers and the ancillary lines and everything like that, was that when we had discussed um, when there was no drain valve, and I just said just cut it with a recip saw? That's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. So this is something that blew me away. So for those of you listening, um, Andrew and I had conversed a little bit. And and I don't know if, if Andrew was trying to just seek some input or advice on somebody who lives with cold weather for more than half of the year. But I guess my understanding was that the, the equipment wasn't designed to be drained. Is that correct? To your first point, yeah, absolutely. That's that's the exact reason I reached out to you, knowing that you're familiar with building operations and dealing with the cold <laughs> way more than I am. I mean, I think <laughs> I think we get to freezing maybe five times a year. And so that's exactly why I sought out your advice with it. But yeah, that that cooling tower at that building, it has an equalizing loop between the two cells of the tower. And that equalizing line, it does have a drain, but the way that it's designed, the drain is almost more of a P-trap than it is just a drain. And so it comes out the bottom of that equalizing line, and then 90s back up about a foot and a half, and then branches over to a drain. And it just, it, I can't tell you the last time that that, sell those tower cells were ever drained and so they were so clogged and so poorly plumbed that i couldn't get a drop out of that thing mm -hmm. and so the low, eventually, the low point was just filled up basically yeah i think yeah. it had just caught enough sludge over the years that it just wouldn't mm -hmm. it wouldn't trickle out let alone flow like a two-inch line should and so that's why i'm bouncing it off of you and eventually he's like yeah just hack it off man leave the valve so I can close it, but hack it off and let it just dump. Yeah. And just deal with it later, I guess. Yeah. 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 That's very, that's very interesting. And then my, I think my fourth one here. So you mentioned about the sprinkler risers that were run through parkades. So um, I'm trying to picture this in my head here. So the parkades are open air and not heated, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then 
you guys don't have dry systems down there is, is what my understanding is. We do have dry systems. Um, the majority of buildings do not have them though. Some do, but it's not nearly as commonplace as just a standard wet system. Okay. Cause I, I had seen some videos of, um, I guess condominium or apartment complexes where the patio fire suppression systems were on the exterior of the building and all ruptured like 10 story building. And just every deck of the occupancy was flooding like crazy. And guys yeah. were like, they couldn't get into main sprinkler rooms to shut the isolation valves because they were full of water and the, the door opens in. Right. Like, yep. <laughs> it just it's it amazes me. It's like they should make a movie out of this, and Mark Wahlberg should star you. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. I really like. Hey that. man, I'd I'd be flattered. That'd be a definite upgrade in the looks department. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, I I've seen a lot of the same videos, and um, one that for some reason sticks out to me is a uh, it was a Chick fil A in a standalone building. In similar situation there, I think that they wound up finding it had ruptured right at the fire pump. But their fire pump room was an exterior door that opened inward. And so the pump is just cycling away, pushing out. And they they could not get the door open. And it was just a steady waterfall, water flow out into the parking lot. And as quick as the water's coming out, it's icing over and just making the entire situation so much worse. You almost need the jaws of life to get the door open. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate that because uh, it, 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 it does it so much more justice to hear somebody's firsthand experience with it. Yeah, it was. Um, that's one of those freak occurrences that Texas probably won't encounter for another 30 years 40 years but to to be working through it was mind-blowing just how ill-prepared all of the systems were constructed you know and especially you get in excuse me you get into these buildings like mine was originally constructed in 72 and nothing nothing like that was even thought of <laughs> so it's it is mind-blowing how like i said at the very beginning of my answer a typical tuesday for you could be so catastrophic for the entire state down here yeah like yeah the wind chill on whatever it was monday morning was minus 27 degrees celsius where i live <laughs> like that's just it's not like that usually in december right it's just not but yeah it, it, all of our winterization all of our blowouts all of our heating pms like everything like that has to be done like october latest because meanwhile, we, we just don't know when this is gonna happen yeah meanwhile i just finished up my annuals on my boilers yesterday oh our annuals are like july <laughs> I'm not even joking. July, <laughs> August, you do it then because that's the only time you're guaranteed to not need heat for like 24 hours. That's wild. Yeah. I don't think my boiler's fired up for the first time until 
the week of Thanksgiving. Man, and I was wearing long johns in in October. And they only they only fired up because it got to like fifty one. Jeez. Yeah, well, if you do come up and visit, you're gonna have to bring a coat or borrow a couple of mine. I'm waiting till July. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right, Chris, you got another question there? Uh, so yeah, actually, revolving around this, um, so. You were saying, Andrew, that most of the issues were in residences and not commercial building spaces. Why do you why do you think that is? Not to pat ourselves on the back too much, because I did point out a couple of key shortcomings from some building operators. But I think that in the commercial buildings, you at least have people like the three of us that their sole purpose there is to keep it operational. And so there was some forethought that went into it of what's not going to handle this. And, you know, I know my building, I know where the shortcomings are. What do I need to be aware of and weary of prior to this un, not unforeseen, but uncommon situation. Whereas in households, Either people were busy focusing on work and trying to wrap up work because the city had basically planned on shutting down for the week and not paying as much attention. And I think there's a a little bit of false sense of security in your house. You know, my house is my house. Nothing's going to go wrong here. You know, oh, yeah. you, go, you go to work and that's where problems are, not at your house. And so I think that there was a, a little bit of inflated sense of security with the households because no again no one had dealt with it at least in my lifetime for it to get that cold for such a prolonged period of time to see the shortcomings and where building styles and norms here in the state were gonna arise and so i just don't think that you know your average homeowner was aware of just how much of their plumbing was in the attic and uninsulated to the elements coming in. We're more used to going in the attic and feeling 110 degrees when it's 90 degrees outside and sweating the second that you get up there than we are thinking, man, it's going to get, if it's 30 outside, it's probably 35 up in the attic. You know, I don't think anybody down here was prepared for, the inverse of the norm you work mainly in office tower kind of buildings is that correct yep yeah okay so chris chris works what do you want to call it chris industrial yeah my 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 deal is more industrial yeah so chris is more industrial i'm kind of a mix of mainly building operations focused on commercial retail uh industrial warehouse and small office so Working in, uh, I'm going to call it a tower, what are some things that Andrew looks for during his daily checks that may indicate a larger future problem could be on the horizon? So I got to I gotta nip this in the bud right now. Daily check-wise, a lot of it stems from the front end of the automation system. Uh, it's a pretty intuitive, it's a little bit antiquated, but it's a, it's a pretty intuitive front end. So I can watch the amperage draw on the motors of the air handlers and I can watch, you know, think 
how they're performing and kind of get a feel for if a motor's drawing too much amperage for its load and it looks like it's on its way out or zones that are colder or hotter than they should be and not quite performing like the the floor average is looking and okay so that's probably somewhere in the in the box and can kind of start there and that's where the majority of my day-to-day will start at and then I can try to start you know going going through those troubleshooting steps like I was talking about earlier the majority of the other stuff is kind of situational you know anytime adverse weather rolls through then you got to make sure to do a good walk around on the roof and walking through the top floor to look for any wet spots where water has intruded into the building and looking for stained ceiling tiles throughout the building to keep an eye if a pipe is starting to leak. Um, One of the joys of, like I said, my building being built in the early 70s is some grade A aged cast iron lines. And so I'm constantly chasing issues with those. I keep a, a checklist pinned on my board on my desk in the office of my upcoming quarterly or annual uh, testing and inspections and make sure to keep up with them to avoid both lapsed inspections and issues that aren't seen proactively. And the majority of it honestly just comes down to implementing and following a good preventative maintenance schedule. And so the majority of my equipment is either checked weekly or bi-weekly. And that gives me, you know, a good chance to slow down, look at it more in depth than just a quick visual every day and actually hear and listen and pay attention to the equipment and see if something sounds off or see if something is out of the norm on its readings and get a feel for it that way. Yeah. I think that's where the majority of it comes from. I'd say that's usually a common, um, I don't, I don't know if I want to say fact, cause I don't know if it's a fact for all buildings, but a common occurrence with most towers is that their BAS or BMS system is so expansive in what they actually have for sensors and what they've installed in the equipment. Like you mentioned, amp draw on an air handling motor, like that could tell you if your filters are caked up right there. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a great, it's a great just, you know, seven o'clock when I get there, sign into the automation, take a glance through everything, make sure that all the air handlers started, that they're all running like they should, that they're, that they're at temperature that their VFD commanding isn't out of whack and out of sorts. And then you start looking at that amperage draw and it's all right there on my homepage. I don't even have to delve into this floor, this side air handler and get to the specifics of it without being able to see it at a glance. And so that's, it's really nice to get that quick, glance over everything and then you see one that's out of whack and like you said it could just be something as simple as air hand uh, as air filters maybe it threw a belt or the motor's dirty with 
I don't, you know, and go from there. But it it gives you a great starting point to know, hey, something is out of sorts in that room. We need to go do a little digging. So it's a lot of visual cues that you need to pick up on with the graphics on the BMS and then transferring that to your audible and touch while you're in that room to sort of link those two together, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. That's That's a good way to put it. I haven't worked myself in a big tower. I don't know, Chris, have you? Uh, I've been around a couple, no, but I have never been responsible for. Right, yeah. So it is quite a different, quite a different thing to be operating those, you know. And I'm not saying that if you only have done smaller, you can't go bigger, or if you've done only bigger, you can't go smaller. It's just different, right? So. Yeah, and I think you and I, Victor, have chatted at length before about the differences and overlaps between you and Chris's. Uh, side of the industry versus mine where y'all spend the majority of your time traveling not you don't spend the majority of your time traveling but you mostly are traveling from different facility to facility or center to center whereas I spend 90% of my time in the same office building and so you it's much like driving a an older vehicle you know you got that classic car, you know when something doesn't quite sound right. But if your buddy hops in it, it just sounds like an older car to him. You hit and the dash and the radio starts. Yeah, and so yeah. he's not familiar with the quirks of it and the little, you know, what doesn't quite look right, but it's okay and, you know, vice versa. It gives you a little bit easy, in my opinion, it gives a little bit easier sense to – a little more familiarization with the systems themselves at that building. I mean, I still will sometimes fill in for guys when they're out for vacation or out on sick leave at a different building. And it's a similar thing. I walk in and it's like, well, yeah, it looks like a building. It looks like I can read everything, but I don't know what's going on. And it takes a minute to get acclimated to a different setup and a different set of norms. Chris, you got one? Yeah, actually, so uh, obviously I follow you on Instagram and I've watched quite a few of your YouTube videos. I was just curious, how did that how did that start up? How did you get into that? Yeah, so Instagram and YouTube started out kind of on a whim. Um, beginning of, I guess it was last year, whenever COVID first took the upswing that it did through our region – Excuse me. Um, I, the building that I was working at at the time went from 3,400 tenant employees there on any given day down to about six people total in the building. And so it mostly stemmed out of boredom because we could do our preventative checks. We could do any scheduled maintenance that normally would have to happen after hours or on a weekend. Um, and caught up real quickly on the backlog of things that were waiting. And all throughout that time, I had been following on my personal Instagram all of these larger accounts that have been around for years and years. And I said, you know, I've got I've got tools. I can post a picture of tools. <laughs> and 
started it out of boredom and it just so happened that at the time that I did, a lot more people were sitting at home and playing on their phones and it just kind of spiraled from there. And it turned into getting to know the community, getting to know people like yourselves and others who share their work experiences or reviews of tools and tips and tricks of using the tools or woodworking is a is a big hobby of mine and so that's where the majority of it started was watching woodworkers on youtube and on instagram and so you know i i do the same thing why not give it a shot and it just kind of grew legs and went on its own i'm just along for the ride at this point well i gotta say i for one am glad that you got bored and decided to put some stuff out there. I, that makes one. That makes one person. I don't know if my wallet is as enthused that I got bored and started talking about all the time. Without Instagram, I don't think I would have found half of the tools that I now own. You can just blame it on Chris, usually, right? <laughs> it's. Yeah, I- cr- it's Chris and it's Mechanical Hub. Mechanical Hub has all the cool tools. Oh, yeah, he does. Yeah, Eric will be happy to hear that for sure. I was I was actually fortunate enough. I um I wound up meeting Eric not too long ago. And, you know, as, as genuine of a person as he seems in all of his videos and his podcast and everything else, he, he's every bit of that in person. He's a great guy. And it was... It was very surreal and yet fun to meet him and get to shoot the shit and hear ideas that he had and hear his take on social media and how it pertains to trade life and work and everything. And it, he's a great guy. That'd definitely be an interesting conversation. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. You know, it's it's funny because uh, I, I was I was reflecting a little bit ago, and, and and I'm like, you know, I could honestly listen to Andrew talk all day. He could keep talking about tools. He doesn't need our help with questions. Just start <laughs> talking, man, and and I'll be entertained for the rest of the night. You know, and I feel like there's a lot of people in the community that that I feel that way about. Like, there's enough of us that are like minded. Uh, just genuinely, genuinely like what we do and the tools we buy and all that stuff. It's it's really cool. Well, it's been great having you on the podcast, Andrew. You're the first on call with an operator guest. Uh, I just I can't thank you enough for sharing your t- sharing your thoughts and your time with us and and your experiences, especially recapping the Texas cold snap, which you know all I got was videos and, and some of our conversations from it, but you, you definitely expanded on it quite a bit. So I appreciate that. Uh, we got one more question here for you to wrap up the show. What's the difference between an alligator and a crocodile? <laughs> one, I'll see you later. And the other, I'll see you in a while.